We are uh, continuing on on our journey of finding faith. Uh, we are on this journey together, hoping to uh, discover or increase our faith. As we took a look last time, uh, faith is the believing response to something said or promised by another. Uh, so when God says something uh, or promises something, we then believe and that's faith. Faith is not an assumption. If, if God didn't say it or another person doesn't say something or promise something, then to make a jump and say that is something that is going to be done, that's an assumption. That is not faith. And so we're going to take a look at what faith is and try to find it as opposed to assumption. Now also, the scriptures say that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So that is the reason why we're trying to, to find faith is because we want to be pleasing to him. However, that's the jumping part off of faith. Is there a God? Because if there's no God, then there's no point in having faith in him or his promises because he doesn't exist. For uh, believers, and for instance, myself, you could ask me, is there any possibility that there is no God? And if you would asked me that before I know what I know and learned what I learned and experienced what I experienced, I could say, yes, there is a possibility there is no God. And if you will, a atheist, usually very proud and superior to the fact that they will simply say to you, there is no God. And they're convinced of it. And they're confident of that. And Part of the reason that, as I shared last time, uh, this journey can have some hazard is because of that superiority that they think, oh, well, you must be weak or not intelligent or need a crutch, and therefore they put you at some disadvantage. I want to say that there are more evidences that there is a God than there are evidences that there isn't. And we have no reason to be intimidated by science. People will say, well, science has come to a consensus. But let me tell you that if you hear people say that science has come to a consensus, that I would be very leery of what's said next. Because science isn't about consensus. It's about experimenting things to determine and try to disprove something and after repeated attempts to disprove something in a particular way, if you can't disprove it, then it may have some truth to it. And so it isn't a matter of whether we a whole bunch of scientists get together and say, well, this is true. That's not how science works. Science says things, but scientists are the ones who say things. So when scientists tell you something, you need to, okay, let's inspect it. So for instance, there are various uh, areas of disciplines and learning, whether it's archaeology or physiology or geography uh, or ge uh, geology or uh, physics or all the areas of science. So we'll, we'll take archaeology, for instance. There are those for the longest time that said that the Bible wasn't true because the Bible talks about Hittites, and there were no 
evidence of Hittites until suddenly there was this discovery of documents and pottery and all kinds of other archaeological evidence that in fact showed that there was an empire known as the Hittites. People will say, well, the Bible never talks about dinosaurs. That's true. The Bible doesn't talk about dinosaurs because the word dinosaur was not developed until about 1860-something. And the Bible, having been written thousands of years before that, could not use a word that didn't exist. For instance, we now often talk about computers. Well, there's no mention of computers in the Bible either because they weren't around at the time the Bible was written. There are these, these things, but yet at the same time, the Bible does talk about leviathans and other massive animals. And so we have these things. And so science will also say, well, the earth is billions of years old. And part of that, they will use geology and say, well, see, uh, something like the Grand Canyon was this massive uh, hole in the ground that was created by millions and millions of years of a river cutting through it. However, if you study closely the Colorado River, before it got to the stages it's now, the starting of the river, and then somewhere in the initial stages, the elevation rises and then falls. Rivers don't go upstream, they go downstream. So the, the scripture says, and we, there was a flood, and one way to dig out a great excavation like the Grand Canyon would be a massive flood. Two people can look at the same evidence and come to different conclusions because one says, I must conclude that there is no God, and so it must have taken millions of years. The church has been intimidated by such things. And so, for instance, evolution for many, many, many years, people talked about, well, evolution. And I even had a, uh, a seminary professor who taught uh, systematic theology. And he bought into the whole evolution thing. So he believed in what is known as theistic evolution, that God somehow kind of participated but it was in millions of years, and he just kind of added to it. That, to me, shows a person who isn't all that convinced that God is a God who can create, and is a God who is creator, and has the power to do the things that the scriptures talk about God doing. But again, taking a look at evolution, where is the evidence? The evidence isn't there. Everybody will talk but where do you see in any part of the past or present where one species developed into a partial species and changed? You don't see a squirrel becoming a bat. You see squirrels, you even see flying squirrels, but you don't see squirrels turning into bats. One of the things that were in a lot of biology textbooks was this, uh, the way the, an embryo expanded and went from a cell to this thing that looked like kind of like a tadpole and then another kind of animal and then ultimately a human baby and they say see this is in the uterus evolution 
except before that textbook was ever published, that drawing that study was determined to be a fraud. And yet people still use that drawings even today to argue that evolution exists, but there is no evolutionary evidence. You don't need to be intimidated by science. When it comes to math, you can see people who talk about the universe and, and all of that thing saying the probability of all of these things happening as they are, that there are not enough atoms in the universe to count the number of possibilities that that would take for this to happen. And so we don't need to be intimidated by science because the evidence that there is a God is far superior to the evidence that there isn't. And so while the scripture says that we are to have faith, and that is faith is what pleases God. God also says that by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So starting out our faith, we need to say that God was the God who existed and created what we have in this world. And so that's where we're going to jump off in our search for faith is God and who Jesus is. And so using the gospel of John as our jumping off point, in the first chapter of John, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is starting out saying, I want to call your attention to Genesis that sit in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he spoke these worlds into existence. And he spoke all that has existed by speech. And so John is saying that in the beginning was the word. Now he's not using the Greek definition of word as logic, but as the action of God in speech. This is in the beginning when we all started out was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He's saying that in essence, the active agent of God was the son of God, who was the one who was responsible for the creation of the heavens and the earth. And that he was with God, which meant that he's not just, God himself, but he was with God and the word was God. Now, the it doesn't say he was the God because he's God, but he's not the God. He is, you know, and I'll address that. And he's also not a God because the scriptures clearly teach that there is not a numerous uh, polytheistic view of the world. It is God is one. And so just as Genesis said that God spoke and the spirit moved, here we say that the word was with God and was God. And it says, and he was in the beginning with God. So John starts out telling us that there is a trinity. Now, again, that word is not found in the Bible either. 
Trinity is the concept of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are God. But they're one entity defined by three personhoods. Now, the problem with this is that there's no way to explain that without becoming a heretic. Every attempt I've ever heard for somebody to say, well, this is what the Trinity is like, messes it up. So I'm not even going to try to help you with that. And it's one of the reasons why I think that the Trinity exists, because it's beyond human comprehension and human discussion. Um, and so John lets us know that the word was part and parcel of who God was and is. Now, under Jewish law, nothing was established as a fact unless there were two or three witnesses to testify to it. And so I'm going to use a couple of different writers to show that John is not alone in his discussion that the word Jesus was God. And so in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, and in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is God and he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation. And so John has said the word was with God and the word was God. In Hebrews, the writer says that he was the one who was speech and that he is the radiance of the glory of God and his exact representation. We're also told in Ephesians, which is written by Paul, to a third witness, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he pretestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intentions of his will, to the praise and the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. And so the Paul says that before God ever spoke, let there be light. Before there was ever a, a earth or a, the heavens to descend, God came up with a plan for our salvation. Before the foundations of the world, it was planned that Jesus would be our Redeemer and our Savior. That was, again, so many times you'll hear people say, well, man fell and God had to come up with another plan. And then that plan didn't work, so he came up with another plan. And then that plan didn't come up, so he sent Jesus. No, God's plan from the eternity that was from the time that God determined that he would create us. 
The plan was to send Jesus as our redeemer. So Jesus existed. And then John continues on and says in verse 3, All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And so the situation here is that again, we are told that it was Jesus who created all things. Nothing that has been created was not created except through the agency of Jesus. So he is the creator of us all. And then we are told in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, he being Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. For the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So we are told that not only is Jesus the creator, and he is the creator of things, whether it's material or powers, or dominions, or any other thing. He also is the one who sustains. People say, I'm not even sure how the atom is able to stay stable, how the electrons don't fly off and different things. And it is because Jesus is holding all things together. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the pre-existent, pre-incarnate word of God, who is God. Then the scriptures go on in John chapter 1, verse 4. It says, in him, Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus was life. He's the one who gave life. He's the one who sustains life. He's the one who continues life not only in the physical sense, but in the eternal spiritual sense. And that life was the light of men. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a really dark place, but I, I have at times been in a place that was so dark that you literally could not see your hand in front of your face. When that happens, you're almost uh, int intimidated not to move because you're afraid if you move, you'll bump into something, stub your toe, or do whatever, fall down and get hurt, because you can't see where you're going. You don't know whether it's safe. You don't know what objects are in front of you. And it takes light to allow you to see. And Jesus is that light who allows us to see the real world, to see what he is and what he has done and who we are. He is that light that gives us the ability to see. It says, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Amazing. Those of us who, who are believers and those of us who see Jesus in some small way as who he is, it's hard for us sometimes to understand why people don't see him for who he is. And yet it's because 
the light hasn't shown in their lives in order to be able to see. The darkness doesn't comprehend. The really strange language in Genesis, when it said that God, when he was creating the heavens and the earth, he said that in essence, light and darkness were all messed up. And he separated the light from the darkness. You know, how can that be? And yet here we see that he is in essence by his separation, his sanctification, sanctifying light, and yet the darkness doesn't comprehend it. And then he says in John chapter 14, uh, chapter 1, verse 14, we're going to skip down a few verses. Next time we'll take up those intervening verses. He says something very interesting. John says, and the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, there was a group of people who were called the Gnostics. And they believed that flesh and blood was evil. And so Jesus could not have been flesh and blood. He could have only been spirit because he wasn't evil. And so therefore his suffering wasn't real. And his crucifixion really wasn't real because he was just a spirit. The scriptures do not teach that. The scriptures teach that he was flesh and blood. And the term dwelt, was really he tabernacled amongst us. He tented amongst us. He lived his life as we are. Now, there will be a day that we will no longer be tabernacling. This body that we have is subject to pain and illness and death and sorrow and all those things. But there will come a time for those believers who will have a new body. It won't be a tent. It'll be like a temple, a permanent structure. And so he dwelt amongst us. He tabernacled. He experienced the same things we did. He suffered to the same pains and sorrow. So he dwelt among us. He was flesh. He was 100% God and 100% man. He was, as the scripture said, the exact representation of who God was. Assuming that Jesus back then was about five foot four or so, as people were shorter than they are now, he was all that, in essence, God could cram into a five foot four human being. But he was God. How do I explain that? I don't. I don't understand how God can be man and man could be God. Kind of like the Trinity. Don't understand fully the concept of three persons in one. And yet that's the, the exact right perspective. And so he was man. He was God. And we saw his glory. The glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. As they experienced Jesus' life and ministry, they saw Jesus, they saw his glory. 
the glory of God. The scriptures tell us that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus didn't sin. He never fell short. He was and would they beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father. Now, begotten doesn't mean that he was born. It means that he has the rank and privilege of the firstborn to all things. And so we see this glory of this one who is supreme and preeminent. He preexisted before the earth was made in the heavens, and he created those things, he sustains those things, and he came in flesh and blood to live among us. Because the Father sent him. Then it says, he was full of grace and truth. Now grace means unmerited favor. There's also a definition of grace that when like somebody's ice skating and they do a great job as they they slide around the arena, they say that person has grace. They're able to move around certain ways. But in the biblical sense, grace is unmerited favor. Now Jesus wasn't filled with unmerited favor because he didn't deserve it and God filled him. He was filled with unmerited favor that he might bestow it on others. People who were sinners, he bestowed grace. People who were suffering through illness, he bestowed grace. Those who were blind and lame and deaf, he bestowed grace. Even on the woman who thought, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I would be healed. And when she did, she was healed because he was full of grace. And that's why so many people gravitated to him because they saw this perfect representation of the glory of God who didn't come to condemn them, but came to give them grace, unmerited favor. And he was full of truth. Not your truth, not my truth, truth. We live in a world today where everybody goes, well, that's your truth. Well, that's my truth. That's subjective, worthless discussion. Truth is an absolute. It is either true or it's not. Not matter whether I hold it to be true or you hold it to be true. It is whether it is true. And Jesus is filled with truth. He is the truth. And John and the disciples recognized that when he taught, he taught not as one who had learned, but one who knew. Because he was full of grace and truth and was the word. And just as we know what do. He knows us in exact every dimension, whether it's our DNA or problem or illness 
our dreams or aspirations. He knows us, not just because he lived here in the flesh, but because he is God. He dwelt among us. And so as we go through this study, finding faith, we start out with the conclusion that there is a God. And Jesus is part of that Godhead. And that what he says is where we determine faith. Because if he said something, and he's full of truth, that it will come into pass. If he doesn't say something, then we can't say that he said something he didn't say. So we come to this point that he existed before heaven and earth. He was holy then. We come to when he came to be on this earth with flesh and blood, and he was holy then, and his people recognized him. On the cross, when he suffered and died, he was holy. When he rose from the dead, he was holy. When he arose to heaven, he was holy. Sitting in heaven today, he is holy. When he returned to earth, as he promised us, he is holy. And when we dwell in this house forever, he is holy. He is holy forever. The Son of God. The Word became flesh. And all God's people said.